Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Sunday Night Shisha. Today I have a very special guest, uh, my father's friend and a very well-travelled individual. Robert, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast today. Hey, a uh, pleasure to be here. It's fantastic to have you. And can you tell the audience a little bit about what it is that you do and why you are so well-travelled? Uh, I Well, the official title I have is a humanitarian aid worker and uh, essentially I work for a charity or an aid organisation and when there's a major disaster somewhere, I go in and start to organise and assist with the relief for those people that have been badly affected by the disaster. And how long have you been uh, aiding in disaster relief? Uh, 20 years, the last 20 years. So having said that, there was a few odd ones before that, but yeah. solidly for the last 20 years. How do you? How is it that you get into this like career path? Um, hey, that's a long story. <laughs> I don't think we've got long enough. But basically, I had been exposed, should we say, to developing countries, and that's where yeah. often the aid is needed after an emergency. And I just loved the work there. And then in my normal job at that point in time was I was uh, working in emergency management uh, and uh, risk management uh, in the health sector and I thought well I can combine the two together I'd love to actually you know assist in disasters and emergencies in developing countries and so yeah I did some tertiary studies uh, got some qualifications behind me did voluntary work and then fortunately was picked up by an aid organization and then for 20 years did work for them. There you go. Um, Tell us about your first like situation where you go to a different country and this is like your first gig where you're uh, helping in their disaster. How did what was that like? Well, I can tell you the first time I was picked up. Actually, well, I can't say picked up. I actually wasn't working for an aid organisation, but right. they were aware that I existed, shall we say? And there was a major earthquake occurred in India, and uh, so I just got a phone call uh, out of the blue saying, "Hey." We need someone to uh, be a part of the assessment team to go in. We know you've got a background in emergency management. Uh, could you go? So I rang my boss. She said, yes, we'll give you some time off. I go. And this is where the surprises start to happen. You, you know, there's always a surprise around the corner. Yeah. Uh, this being in India, I went to their regional office in Bangkok on the way to have a briefing. And they then advised me that I was the team leader of the team. And I went, what? I've never <laughs> done this thing before. And they said, oh, your experience, you'll be fine and so you know you're on the run immediately and essentially it's going in you've got to find out what the situation is who's in charge who's doing what and um, start to get a picture identify where the greatest need is likely to be because that's where you should be actually working that's right that's right and the importance of this uh, disaster management is to allocate resources and aid to the specific spots where some like the disaster has happened is what I'm taking away. Yeah, it, yeah. it is essentially you need to essentially you need to do a, an assessment to identify what are the needs. Yeah. Now, in most cases, it's going to be the survival needs of people, which is going to be water, food, and shelter. So you yeah. know that you know you're going to have to do that, but it's not always the case. And then, of course, as things progress, the needs do change uh, over time. So it's yeah, identifying what is the most critical life-saving needs that are uh, there. Then there needs to be coordination with other agencies, with the government, with the UN, to ensure that you're not duplicating and to try and avoid gaps. Because the last yeah. thing you want is all the people over there getting the help and no one over there getting yeah. the help. And so, so you know, it, it is actually well-organised uh, internationally 
mostly. I mean, there is chaos. There's always going to be chaos and you've got mm. to sort through, but there are systems in place and the UN and local government working together usually do a pretty good job at that so yeah. that those of us that are providing the assistance know where we should go, who we should give it to, what they need. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, so tell me about... A story that stands out to you, a, a situation, a disaster you went through that is still stuck in your head to this day, like the most eventful, not eventful per se, but the most memorable for yourself. Um, the most memorable, and I'll try and make this a very quick short story. That's all right. But um, it was actually the Asian tsunami of 2004, uh, Boxing Day tsunami. And uh, I, uh, well, it becomes memorable for a start. Uh, I actually had uh, spent Christmas at home uh, in yeah. New Zealand. I was living there at the time. And uh, Boxing Day, I was flying to Denmark to actually yeah. meet with some uh, senior people for planning for global emergency management for the organisation I was working for. So, of course, being December, Denmark, I had nothing but all my winter woolies and big coats and hats and everything else. I jump onto the plane early morning out of New Zealand. I land in Bangkok, go to the lounge at the airport, and I see on the screens there of this tsunami that had just happened. They didn't know where, what, or the you know extent of it, but they just were saying it was you know major. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Oh, you know, but didn't think much more. Got onto the plane, went to uh, flew into Copenhagen. Of course, by the time I landed there, the magnitude was known. I then had to turn around almost immediately, and I was sent back to Indonesia, or sent to Indonesia, I should say by the organisation, mainly because I'd spent two years, just the year a couple of years before, working in the country and living in the country. So I knew the systems fairly well. So, of course, I arrive in a tropical country and I have nothing but woolies and yeah. coats and everything else. I had to go out and buy something else. I had to leave a bag in Jakarta, take yeah. a smaller bag and then you know did the response. What I wanted to just share with you is that I identified very quickly the place that was most in need. Totally cut off. Um, the, the airport was out. The, all the wharves and everything else had gone. So sea was out, yeah. um, and roads were out, and it was just yeah, very isolated. Yeah. So I identified how I could get there, and that was I could fly into a, an airport. Then we could go as far as we could by road, and then we'd see how we'd get on from there. Now. What I'm going to share with you now is one could term it as providential, miraculous, coincidental. I don't know, but yeah. you can make your own mind up on this. Yeah. Um, and I'll try and make it very short. I get I, I uh, found the nearest airport that I could fly into, a place called Tapaktuan, and uh, asked for a, a you know commercial flight. They did one flight a day, six o'clock in the morning, and they were booked out for ten days in advance. And I yeah. thought I cannot wait that long. There was someone from the Boston Globe, a journalist who was uh, at the airport, and she came up to me and she said, "You're trying to get through to Tapaktuan." And I said, yes. And she said, well, look, I've charged a flight. I can give you a seat. And I said, well, you'll need to give me two because I've got an uh, interpreter with me as well. And she said, well, look, yeah, we could do that. She said, it's going to cost you $2,000. I thought, well, if that's what I've got to pay, that's what I've got to pay. So I said, yep, right. Just as we finished our conversation, her phone rings. 
and it was a Japanese journalist who had said, who said to her, I hear that you've uh, uh, chartered a uh, plane into the area. Can I get a seat? She, I've just sold it for two thousand dollars. I'll give you two thousand one hundred. He said. <laughs> she then comes back to me and she says, "Oh, I've just sold it for two thousand one hundred. I said, "Well, I'll give you two thousand two hundred." And we kept sort of going up to about yeah. two thousand six hundred. Nothing. This is absurd. How much do you have to pay for this boom flight? And she's making a profit out of this. Yeah. You know, she was quite happy. <laughs> anyway, at that point, someone just tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, um, you wanted to go to Tabuktua? And I said, yes. And he says, well, uh, and he was an Indonesian. He actually was living and working in Malaysia at the time. And he said, well, I've got three tickets, he says, but I only need one. Do you want to? <laughs> yes, I'll have them. And he says, well, look, just come to the counter with me and we'll get things sorted out. They cost me... One hundred dollars each, a total of two hundred bucks. There you go. So I had then flights through to there. Why this guy had three tickets, he couldn't tell me. But and we flew the next morning. Yeah. So we jumped on the plane. We got to Tapaktuan. Uh, no fuel was coming through because all the ports had been wiped out. There was a fuel shortage. Roads were badly damaged, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so uh, anyway, he, the guy. Indonesian guy that had given me the tickets, he said, look, I'm heading up towards Malabo, which was the place that we wanted to go to. That was the worst affected place. He said, I'm trying to find my parents, see how they are. He said, leave it with me. I'll organise some transport for us. Well, we got into this little Suzuki van. Normally holds yeah. about six people. We had about 18 of us on the oh, roof, wow. hanging out the doors, oh, everything Lord. else. And we headed off and we got within about probably 20 kilometres of uh, Malabo. And the uh, driver said, I'm not going any further. I mean, cracks across the road, road had dropped down, bridges up, and, you know, it was just sort of a hair-raising ride, etc. And so we got out, and my translator, Ruli, he was with me, and uh, we're standing on the side of the road, and we'd been literally there less than a minute, and I just said to him, well, looks like we're going to have to walk. And he said, well, if that's the case, that's it. Next minute, a big four-wheel drive vehicle screeched to a halt just yeah. past us. There was an exchange in Bahasa, Indonesia, between uh, my interpreter and the someone in the vehicle. The next thing I know, I'm being bundled into the vehicle, and we're off to Malabo. There you go. And I said to uh, my interpreter, I said, what is going on here? There was someone in that vehicle who had been at university with my interpreter seven years previous, 2,000 kilometres wow. from there, and he recognised him and stopped and gave him a lift. Just a wonderful course of events that yep. has just led to it. But it hasn't finished yet. Oh, there's more. Oh, <laughs> there's Lord. more. Yes. So I didn't get through to Malabo, go to the commander, registered and everything else. I needed to then uh, get my report out. I needed to get relief supplies going. So I went out to the airport. Uh, because I'd been told that the Singapore um, military had uh, helicopters there, etc. And I actually sat down, talking to the guys, and they said, look, we're not sure when we're going back to Medan, uh, and, uh, but yeah, sure, you can get a lift with us, but it could be hours. And I thought, oh, goodness, you know, if it's too long. But it was uh, some dignitary who was on a tour in the Singapore Air Force that, you know, brought them in. As I was sitting there talking to them, I saw overhead a small plane just circling and looked like it was, you know, going to land. I thought, oh, you can't do this. The runway was all broken up, cracked and everything else. It was just an absolute mess. Next minute, in comes this little plane and he managed to actually land. So anyway, I sort of ran up the tarmac to the guy who'd got out of, the, out of the plane and I said to him, how long are you here for? And he said, oh, I'm just, you know, taking a look at the place and I'm then heading back to Medan. I said, well, can I hitch a ride? Yep, sure, he says, jump in. 
went back to Medan, organised all the relief supplies. That guy had a number of planes and for the next two months, every day, backwards and forwards, he was fearing uh, relief supplies for us. So that, you know, I mean, that's an incredible sort of sequence of events that I can't explain. Yeah. Well, we leave it to everyone to think what it might be. But, yeah. I, you know, we were able, you know, I say we because it's not just me. It's people, it's a team of us are working, were able to be very, very effective in getting emergency supplies into there, you know, very quickly. Yeah. It was a long story for you. <laughs> no, that was a very interesting story. Wow. So everything just kind of came into play. Every like roadblock you hit, there was yep. another opportunity for you to just yep. keep moving forward. And, and that is often what happens. Not always, yeah. but you know, you've got to f- be imaginative in finding mm. solutions, but sometimes those solutions just appear there. Yeah. Um, and I've got to be honest, uh, you know, I am a Christian and I believe yeah. there is a God. Absolutely, yeah. But, you know, I'm not here to, you know, evangelise on yeah. this uh, <laughs> show. That's all right. Yeah. No, yeah, I definitely get that as well with the whole religion aspect, uh, seeing, like, these opportunities. Like, even myself, personally, sometimes I just, like, something happens. I'm like, there's no way that just happened. There has yeah. to be, like, some reason. Someone made that happen. But yeah, that that does sound like one of those stories. Like every roadblock, someone was like, "There you go. There's another opportunity." Yeah. Everything just fell into place perfectly, yeah. and that's etched into my mind because it was yeah. just so dramatic, you know. Yeah, it would be would make a great Hollywood movie. I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> that's I'm not good. sure about that. You could probably star in it. I reckon <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was the 2005 Asian tsunami. Did you say? Well, it was Boxing Day 2004. 2004. So it was very early January by the time I got in there. Right. Um, yes. So I, you know, I look. I lost track of the days and times yeah. and that, but it was probably about the first or second of January first that second, I actually yeah. got wow. into Malabo. And just a new year. That would be horrible. Like a disaster happening right then for everyone yeah. as well. It's that's horrible that. whenever it happens. That it is doesn't true. Matter if it's Christmas but year but it's just but like yeah. when you're so like off guard. I, I just assume that people are off guard because, like, when uh, New Year's happened here, you know, everyone's mm. just gone and then the new day starts and everyone's happy. So just yeah. be horrible to start that way. Yeah. But um, was there any, like, recently, like, um, any big COVID disasters or uh, anything related to that that happened around the world? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, yeah, COVID was... Massive because yeah. it was global. Yeah, and uh, of course, there you know, with the organisation I work for, it's in the poorer <coughs> countries where they don't have the systems, they don't have the networks, the infrastructure, and that. But I don't want to sort of focus on that so much. Just, um, you know, I talked it sort of near the beginning, if you like, in my twenty-year uh, um, uh, experience with yeah. uh, responding to major disasters was the tsunami, and then towards the end of the twenty years. There was another one, and that was in 2017. Yeah. And you may or may not recall it, but there was what the uh, there was a huge influx or of refugees from Myanmar into yeah. Bangladesh. It was the Rohingya crisis, as we termed it. There was, you know, a, a group of people, uh, an ethnic minority, and in the space of um, literally three to four months, you had nearly one million people cross the border into what is a very poor country, Bangladesh. Bangladesh, you know, you think a large city of a million people and think of all the services and the infrastructure and everything else that you've got and you don't build that in three months. Exactly. And uh, so that was a 
very, very challenging uh, situation that I faced there. And, uh, you know, you just rise to it. You know, there's the organisation I work for and the teamwork there, but then there's all the other organisations, the United Nations, uh, the government and the country was welcoming because they just said, these poor people, they've been forced through, you know, sort of by the military effectively uh, out of their country, we've got to, you know, we've got to do the good thing and provide them with shelter. And so uh, that was about August that that started to happen. Between August and the end of December, the organisation that I worked for, uh, we built 12,000 bamboo houses. In three months? Yes. 12,000 bamboo now, houses. If you can imagine the logistics. We weren't yeah. the only one. There were others, as, you know, other organisations as well. And uh, it is the most, I guess, challenging, demanding, because, the, you know, in addition to that, you've got to look at water supply, you've got to look at sanitation, yeah. you've got to look at food, you know, just for these people to survive. One million people. That's where... That is actually astounding. And all the I'm just thinking in my head of all like the foundation for the houses, making sure that nothing collapses, at yeah. least in the near future. And was it like te- it was temporary housing or uh, should we say temporary and five years later it's still there. Well um, that's good. Very well built houses <laughs> yeah. then. I mean uh, what what it is, there was a standard plan that was decided mm. on very early and engineers had a look at it. Even though it's bamboo, it's gotta actually withstand, be safe. And it's a cyclone-prone uh, cyclone yeah. area as well. Yeah. And uh, so although a simple construction, it was well constructed and we just, you know, we had armies of people that we mm. were just employing and bringing in and we had to, you know, do it to the blueprint, if you like, of yeah. the design. Yeah. That is, that is quite um, inspiring to hear, like, what can happen when you have so many people dedicated to a goal and how much... Um, can be achieved. 12,000 houses in three months is like yeah. no small feat. Yeah. And that's just so one organisation and there were exactly. others doing it. And well, I tell you, I, I don't know if there's any bamboo left in Bangladesh <laughs> these days, but anyway. Just really out of bamboo. Yeah. And you see, so. the other thing, you know, the challenges is you've got all this bamboo coming in yeah. and we had to look at the quality of it. Yeah. Because you don't want poor quality going into the houses, which then affects the strength of the houses, mm. the durability and everything else. So, mm. yeah. What a system. So, yeah, so you had to, like, kind of... What, what I see is, like, you're very adaptable with the uh, disaster management. It seems like you're doing a different thing almost every time because no two disasters are the same, right? And no two countries are the same. Exactly. And, you know, it's anywhere from where I've been sleeping on the ground under the stars because there's just nowhere else to sleep yeah. to uh, in a school on a concrete floor and I had nothing under me because yeah. I just didn't... Yeah, hadn't had time to bring stuff in. Um, you've just got to respond, and then you do the best you can, and then try and you know build your situation, you know, yeah. to meet your needs as well. Uh, because the key thing is, you've got to go in, and you can't be a drain on the local resources. Exactly, you've got yeah. to come in and be totally self-sufficient. Yeah. But having said that, the local people are just so beautiful, helpful, mm. caring, generous people. Here they are suffering. And they actually go out of their way to help you and often provide you with a bed, provide you with some food or whatever, yeah. even though they have n- not a lot themselves. And so human nature, you know, human beings at their best often, you know, disasters often bring the best out in exactly, human beings. Yes. And um, I just love the people that we work with, you know. Yeah. They're just incredible. Resilient, tough people who get on with life, you know. Yeah. 
so good to hear that um exchange of you're obviously there to help them and manage the disaster uh the response to it and they're they're being so grateful for you is it like being grateful or just like um also i just lost my train of thoughts very quickly being very grateful or just that human kindness i think it's just the relationship almost that you build with someone when you are yeah. kind to someone they then will respond in a kind way it's you know let's use a situation that we face every day you know if someone smiles at you and speaks nicely to yeah. you you smile back and speak nicely exactly yeah. if they you know sort of not, yeah. you respond often in a similar way and i think it's just you know being able to help people when there's a genuine need and they respond almost you know more than you know sort of uh, than what you've done just with their thankfulness and their expression of gratitude they yeah. are really grateful and and they'll do anything they can to help and support and make your life a little bit more comfortable when you're Fantastic. in what is a very difficult situation but yeah. hey human beings are great people yeah the good ones are the anyway. good ones are <laughs> and the, let's face it the majority of people are good yeah i feel like once we realize that like everyone realizes that the majority of people are good so many things will be so much easier like so oh. many big issues yeah. will just kind of diminish once you realize oh. that everyone is inherently well most people are inherently good yeah yeah and it starts with us yeah with mm. each one of us just being kind to the person next to you exactly yeah kind word a smile hey all good yeah. and it, the what do we, the the management is saying it's not one of these uh, okay How, what time is it Okay, then just get one, one more minute, a uh, couple more minutes. <laughs> I'm very interested in this conversation. <laughs> you have me very captivated, Robert. Um, I was going to ask a question. So it's just like kind of that energy transfer as well, isn't it? Well, yeah. I, I don't like to say energy transfer. It's just like uh, kindness kind of reciprocates, you know, the whole idea of oh. karma and all these things, yeah. you know. Yeah. Your energy, if you're being kind to someone, it will like pass along. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. And. Yeah. I kind of I kind of live by that like a little bit as well. Like I don't like the idea of um, doing something kind because you think it's going to happen to you as well. Like doing mm. something for someone because you're expecting that at a different point in your life. Yeah. But I I feel like the more you are uh, selfless and serving of to other people, the more not that you'll be rewarded, but the more you'll see that in your life. You know, the more you see that from other people because that attracts the the same energy. From other oh, people. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I believe there is a reward when you're kind to someone in the respect that you're kind to someone and just the fact that they show exactly. gratitude yes. is rewarding in itself. That you is don't so need right. To, you, know, yeah. you don't need to receive a dollar or two yeah. or, you know, f f a free ride or anything else. Yeah. It's just the fact of that look of gratitude. And, look, I can give a very simple example from just a few weeks ago. I yeah. was in India yeah. and I catch Uber there because it's the easiest, quickest yeah. and cheapest to do and the guys who drive these vehicles they don't own them yeah, yeah th these wealthy people own all the vehicles yeah. and these poor guys they drive long hours just to make a little bit of a living and so when i come to i always pay in cash when i'm there don't use my credit card because yeah. i never know what happens in india to credit yeah. cards but anyway that's another story and i you know i give them usually a reasonable size tip well yeah for me, it's not a lot, and I'll be honest, I give them usually about 50 rupees. Yeah. To them, that's their daily wage, Yeah. and yet it's only a dollar Australian. Yeah. And 
the reward for me is just this huge smile on their face and they yeah. just oh thank you yeah. and they're just so grateful yeah. and yet it's so little from me but i love doing yeah. it you know because it's helping them out it becomes a big and thing as well oh yeah. definitely yeah you know um it must be honest those who try and screw me and get a bit out, you know yeah. say i'm going to keep the change well i'm sorry they don't get my change <laughs> <laughs> i can yeah. be a little bit hard so <laughs> maybe but, you know but if someone genuinely they just you know mm. and i just feel sorry for these guys in a way but hey that's life for them there and they've yeah. got a job they are earning but yeah. it is day by day the surviving you know and that little bit extra which doesn't yeah. really cost me, but there is that energy. I mean, that yeah. you can feel the warmth coming from them when you yeah. give them that little, just a little extra tip. You know? That's right. I, I want to say one more thing before we cut, just something very quickly. <laughs> uh, so that uh, I've talked too much, probably, but no, anyway. <laughs> that's okay. It's been fantastic. We have like two hour podcasts. This is this is such oh, like is so nothing. tame. You know? How long but, have you got? Uh, <laughs> no. I'll, I'll call in sick today, <laughs> but um. So, the, yeah, everyone's always spending money on, like, something, like, new every day. Like, this consumerism is, like, really mm. uh, caught us, especially my generation. Where we're getting yeah. the new clothes every day, new cars, uh, just even food, just, like, buying food that is expensive for no reason, just because it's part of a specific brand or whatever. But I feel like it's so much more rewarding when you see what how far that, that $1 or, like, that $10 mm -hmm. that you're spending on nothing or that $50 yeah. you're spending on nothing can go when you, like, just, like... Use it in kindness. Yeah. When someone needs it and you're mm -hmm. there for them, I feel like that's way more rewarding than any like material goods, any new shoes, any new hat or anything. Yeah. Doesn't say it's necessities that you need. Mm. But what you what you need beyond the, the things you want, I think is that human kindness and you giving and you receiving that gratitude. Yeah. Gratitude is so so valuable and I feel like my generation has kind of like forgotten that a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, uh, look, I, I am a great believer in giving, obviously, yeah. and you can give in so many ways. It right. may be your time, and yeah, you know, so we, always have to be money. Yeah, as well, yeah, people who volunteer and do things. I mean, they just make the world happen. Often for those that you know are struggling, yeah. it may be a little bit of cash, and you give it to a you know charity or something. It may be some. Even just goods, rather than chucking them out, take them to the second hand, well, yeah. not to St. Vinny's or some yeah. op shop or whatever, because they turn that into cash to yeah. help people, you know. So it's really thinking about how can I actually recycle or how can I give in some way that is going to help someone who's less fortunate than I am. Exactly. Yeah, no, hey, great point that you raised there. Thank you. That, I think that is a wonderful point for me to end on as well, because I right. think my manager will be. I think, Dad, do you want to come sit here in this yeah. position? <laughs> uh, well, I'm clocking out. Uh, thank you very much for watching Sunday Night Shisha. Dad, come take this seat while I disappear. Robert, it was fantastic talking uh, to you. Hey, today. look, yeah. you know, thank you for the opportunity because... Thank you I'm for the opportunity, man. No, no. I've never yeah. had a guest that has been this interesting on my podcast. So this is uh, a wonderful opportunity for me as well. Thank okay. you very much. Hey, pleasure. Do you want to know how I interview... So Robert, oh. I'll just hand it uh, Okay. <laughs> so right, where you I need to get changed. I'll be back in a moment. Okay, no. Uh, okay, I tell you how I've been introduced to Robert. Uh, that's going back to like about 30 years ago. More uh, than 30 years ago. 1991 or 92? 
Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Actually, it could be 30 years, 92, yeah. yeah, yeah probably yeah, more somewhere around about that. Yeah. And what happened, you know, uh, I was a study in that spice uh, College. Yeah, Memorial yeah, College, College, yeah. yeah. And Robert, he was the... This is in t- India. T- yeah, in India, mm. that's right. Robert teaching health, I believe. Yes. And then one day, one of the teacher, Indian teacher, he introduced me to Robert and said, oh... This Robert is another teacher and things, and then Robert started to talking to me, but honestly I couldn't understand the word because of his accent. And then I look at the other teacher, which is from India, and he translate his English to Indian English, and then I understood. <laughs> then Robert said, "Oh my God, it's so funny, you know, English is my mother tongue, but you cannot understand me. Maybe I talk to you more often." And then. Our friendship is start, and then every day I see Robert, and he take me home, and we have a tea and talking, and then we became like a family friend for uh, more than thirty years. Still, we are friends. And uh, when I lived in India and uh, met my good friend here, uh, I had two young children, and he was very good. And actually, from time to time, would uh, take the children out for the day. Yeah, and I was a baby. Give my wife and yeah, <laughs> babysitter. So yeah. you know, th- there was that exchange of sort of yeah, uh, you know uh, friendship, I guess, is yeah. what it is. And uh, we travelled quite a bit together, and uh, we had fun times. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. We, we've actually never lost touch over the years. We've yeah, uh, always remained in touch, and I value the friendship. You know, I really yeah, love it too. Same so. here. Yeah, that was great. You know, and last night I showed Robert some of the photos. You know, and then when we look at those photos, both of us, we see really we age a lot. <laughs> But they still look same, you know, but just different. I think we've eaten a lot of food as well. We looked yeah. a bit bigger <laughs> than we were in the photos then. But anyway, that's yeah. another story. So. Yeah, that's but yeah, yeah, it's good to have a Robert here tonight, you know. And then, yeah. Uh, look, uh, you know, the, uh, it, it, there's nothing better than a good friendship that's over the years where you've shared together and you relive those memories, but you move forward with new memories. And yeah. it's like, you know, when I knew, I mean, uh, originally, of course, a single guy, uh, since he's uh, got married, now got children, though, you know, growing up, developing moving into, you know, their career pathways. And, of course, my two young children are now, you know, married. They've got children of their own. And, you know, it's that part of that life cycle. And just, you know, we've sort of always kept in touch and seen the changes that have occurred in each of our families over the years. Okay, we say friend forever. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, definitely. I think Benjamin, he left us. I think we better wrap it up. Okay. Yep. Turn the camera off now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you for watching. And yeah. uh, we're going to finish it now. And uh, oh, it's back again. Okay. Yeah. Give your. Do you guys have a good conversation? Yeah, we did. Actually, well, you can listen yeah, to it later yeah. and tell us <laughs> whether it was good I or not. In the audience. Yeah. As well. yeah. <laughs> I'll just wrap it up here. And I already said thank you, but I'm going to say it again because really. I'm so grateful that you came on, even though you know you were a bit hesitant at first. But how was it? how was the experience? Well, actually, I guess talking about l- one's life experiences, 
because they're etched in your mind, yeah. it is easy. Yeah. It's whether it's actually you tell it in a way that's interesting. I mean, mm. uh, I think you've met people who drone on and on and you yeah. wish they would end quickly. I You're definitely not like one that, of those people, know. no. Yeah, so, uh, but, you know, life is an adventure. Yeah. And, you know, what I'd say is get out there, make the most of life, find what you really like doing and do it, you know. Yes. Um, because... I've loved my life so far, and I'm looking forward to the future. You know, there's yeah. uh, there's always plenty to do. See, whatever it might be, yeah. love life. Fantastic, love life, guys. That is a fantastic message. Yeah. And uh, thank you very much for watching this episode of Sunday Night Shisha. Thank you, Robert, for being here. Thank you, Dad, for taking over the host position. I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, tune in next week for whatever we have in plan next week.